Well, God bless. Good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 1? Thank you for your prayers. It's good to be back. I had some medical issues that i uh, still dealing with a little bit, but on the road to recovery. Then uh, Cindy and I went out to uh, California to go to a pastor's and wife's conference seeing uh, for a few days, my brothers and then my son and his family, and the, right before we came home. So been gone a little bit, um, and before we left, uh, we, we started a new series here at Calvary through the book of Galatians, but instead of going through the book verse by verse, which is what we normally do, we decided to study it topically based on its main theme. Now, the main theme of Galatians is liberty. And uh, the liberty or freedom that is ours in Christ. The um, key verse of the book uh, of Galatians is in chapter 5, verse 1, where it reads, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And so, guys, as we began this series, I said that we're going to focus our attention on three main areas or three main topics of liberty that Paul brings up in this epistle. Liberty from lies, number one. Number two, liberty from law. And then liberty for life. And last time we started looking at liberty from lies, which in some ways is really an introduction to the second main point, liberty from law. But I decided to include it as a main point because of the day in which we are living. And by that I mean we are living in a world full of lies. It's always been that way. Uh, the father of lies, the devil, Jesus said in John eight forty four, uh, He's the God of this world. He, uh, The word father there means source. He's the source of all lies. And... Um, But these lies are ramping up, even as Jesus said they would, the closer we got to his return. But it does seem like they're getting worse day by day. Uh, Now look, some of these lies are kind of innocuous, uh, what many call little white lies. Uh, Most people don't realize that there are no innocent, harmless white lies in God's eyes. All lies, according to Revelation 21, verse 8, Uh, All lies are sins that will condemn a person to hell for eternity, if not repented of and washed away by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But granted, from a human standpoint, some lies tend to be small and insignificant, while others uh, are profoundly um, hurtful and life-altering, like the lies associated with marital infidelity. I think that most people understand that all lies, whether serious or small, can only affect us while we live on this earth. Uh, in other words, they can only hurt us temporarily in, in this life and can do, and can do us no more harm uh, after we're dead. But then there are some lies that will not only affect us in the temporal, but will keep on affecting us in the eternal as well. Uh, these lies tell us how to get to heaven, when in reality they will condemn us to hell. They are lies passed off as spiritual truth that, if believed, we are promised. Uh, if we believe these lies and embrace them, of course, those who are promoting them don't think they're lies often. They think they're telling us the truth. And they will tell us that if we embrace these lies, um, 
you know, their gospel, whatever their good news is, is going to give us a new life, a life that will stretch out into eternity and bless us forever. Or so that's what they are told, folks that listen to these people. Uh, I always think of these young Muslim men who uh, strap on uh, explosive vests and then detonate themselves in crowded marketplaces or who hijack uh, jetliners and and fly them into skyscrapers, uh, all in the name of jihad, um, believing that when they open their eyes in death, they will be in paradise surrounded by 72 virgins, when in reality they find themselves in a place of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. Well, the lie of Islam wouldn't be birthed for another 550 years in Paul's day, but uh, Paul dealt with other lies in the first century Greco-Roman world. One of the more prevalent ones that Paul and the other apostles dealt with was the lie of Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Uh, The word Gnostic, and by the way, you can Google that, and you'll find Gnostic websites even today. It's still out there. I did that when I was doing a study touching on this subject, Shocked to find out there are still Gnostics out there. But um, the word Gnosticism and Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word that means knowledge, but not just any knowledge. Uh, Gnostics believe that they uh, are privy to special knowledge, that they have a certain way of praying and meditating and fasting and so on that will uh, open up doors into the spirit realm that nobody else has access to, where they glean this special mystical knowledge that they then pass uh, around to each other. And uh, that's what they believe uh, in part. But uh, Gnostics, uh, in in Paul's day, maybe still today, uh, Gnostics believed that matter, you know, the matter contained in the physical universe uh, is evil. And therefore, Jesus, being God, uh, couldn't have been a flesh and blood human being because his physical body would have made him evil. You know, and God is not and cannot be evil. Therefore, Jesus, they said, could not have come in the flesh. And so most Gnostics claim that he must have come as a spirit, not as a physical man. Uh, Most people don't realize that the first heresy in the church was not an attack against Jesus' divinity. It was an attack against his humanity. Uh, This was a direct attack against Jesus' humanity. Uh, This doctrine, which is a branch of Gnosticism, was called docetism. Again, the belief that Jesus had no actual physical human body. Uh, He only seemed to have one. They believed he was really a phantom or a spirit or a ghost because, again, the physical was evil and Jesus as God couldn't be evil, so he must have not had a physical body. And that's why the Apostle John opened up his first epistle with the words, that which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus Christ, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. We touched him. He was not a phantom. He even said, touch me and see. Does the spirit of flesh and bone as I have after he rose from the dead, right? Um, But we, our hands handled him concerning the word of life. And again, in saying this, John was coming against Gnostic teachings, Gnostic theology, heresy, which taught that Jesus was not a real human being with a physical body. 
Well, guys, some of Satan's lies are so outrageous. I mean, they're so out there, like, you know, Scientology and other uh, mystical, esoteric uh, belief systems. I went online yesterday trying to check out a few. There's tons. Uh, You could just (laughs) type in uh, weird mystical religions or whatever. And, boy, there's a, a, a ton of them out there. And just poking around to see what some of them believed. Wow. Uh, really far out stuff. Okay. And uh, most people are not going to buy into that. It's just too far out there. Most people are not that far out there. You got a few of us in society that are out there. But uh, uh, so most people don't get sucked into that kind of thing. But then there are lies that are far more, more subtle and plausible from a Christian point of view. Um, the reason being because. These uh, systems take elements from the true gospel of Jesus Christ and mix them with just enough error that the final product, the final good news, quote-unquote, they're peddling, can't save anybody, even though it has a lot of Christianity mixed in with it. Uh, These would include the lies of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. And the one that Paul was dealing with in his letter to the Galatians was the lie of the Judaizers, in other words, the lie of legalism, legalism. Look, as we said last time, after Paul visited the area of Galatia, he later learned that the Judaizers had come in after him and and tried to pervert the gospel that Paul had given to the folks in that region. Galatia is a region in uh, south-central modern-day Turkey. And um, he went into that area, preached the gospel. A bunch of people accepted it. Churches were planted Others were interested, were coming to these churches, hearing this good news. And so the Judaizers came in and they uh, tried to pervert the true gospel uh, with their message. And, uh, and the problem was that uh, the churches were listening to them. The churches were listening to them. As we said last time, the word Judaizer comes from a Greek verb meaning uh, really those who teach others to live according to Jewish customs and laws. Uh, probably many of these Judaizers were Pharisees that um, claimed to have accepted Christ as their Savior but didn't want to let go of Judaism. They wanted to kind of blend the two together. And um, as we said last time, the Judaizers taught that in order for a person to become a Christian, he first had to become a Jew, which meant he had to be circumcised and had to keep the law of Moses. Then he could put his faith in Christ to be saved, be a Christian. Their message was a mixture of Christianity and Judaism, of grace and law, of faith plus works. We talked about that, right? And so Paul wrote this letter to counteract their message. He's already presented the gospel to them, so he's defending what he's originally given to them. He's already given them the gospel, planted churches, but now those churches were under attack from false teachers. A big problem back in the early church, still a big problem today in our country. But uh, Paul uh, writes them this epistle defending the true gospel, the one he had presented to them, the one and only gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we know it, the gospel of grace. And that brings us to the second major section in our series, uh, which we're calling A Journey in Liberty Through Galatians, and that is liberty from law. We could also say liberty from religion. We'll talk more about that next time. But liberty from law. This is where Paul gets into the main body of this letter, the main body of this epistle. 
And we, we looked at the first five verses last week, which were introductory. So we get into the main uh, section, verse 6, where Paul said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. The word marvel there is a Greek word that means to be astonished, bewildered. <laughs> Look, Paul didn't marvel that false teachers were teaching false go- were teaching a false gospel. That's what they they did. He knew that. He marveled that the Galatians, <laughs> to whom he had personally taught the truth, were turning away so quickly from that truth and buying into these lies. That's why he marveled. He was dumbfounded. But guys, this is the pain of every pastor every good pastor that people will hear the truth but not go out and really apply it to their lives will listen to other voices that will teach them things that are contrary to god's word Uh, that's why the apostle john said i have no greater joy than knowing that my children are walking in the truth he talks about them turning away the greek word means to desert or to abandon verse six i marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, guys, Paul here is using in the Greek a play on words, a play on words. The word different in verse 6 is the Greek word heteros. And in verse 7, the word translated another is the Greek word alas. And it's a play on words because both words in the Greek, both Greek words can be translated another. So we could read verses 6 and 7 this way. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The word Heteros, again translated different in verse 6, is the word we get the English word heterosexual from. and means another of a different kind. Uh, used to mean that. In our culture, I guess it could mean, you know, if you got a man, that's different from a woman. But not today. Everything's kind of messed up. But back in Paul's day, they still thought that, you know, you have a man and you have a woman. They're different. Okay. The word alas, translated another in verse 7, is a word that means another of the same kind. So the first uh, word, different, verse 6, heteros, another of a different kind. Uh, The word alas, verse 7, translated another, means another of the same kind. I was telling first service that when you study your Bible, it's really a good idea. And you can go online and there's free resources, or you can buy, somebody just told me they bought a whole series of books by an author I really appreciate, uh, spent a lot of money because she wanted to really have some good quality study materials. And um, when you get a good commentary by somebody that you know is a good author, uh, they will bring out some of the historical backgrounds and the Greek, if you're studying the New Testament, and give you insights and tell you what Greek words mean. And it, it gives you insights into the passage that you wouldn't have gotten if you just read it in the English. And that's what, what that's why... When you come here, I spend a lot of time breaking things down. I've had people think, well, you're just too much for me. Just give me the bottom line. I can't give you the bottom line until I give you what the lines are all about. you got to know the lines before you can get to the bottom line, what God's really saying. you got to know what he's, the words are communicating, right? 
So be patient. We'll get there. But one of the reasons that, you know, that um, I bring up this is because Jesus used um, the word alas. Verse 7, another of the same kind. He uses this very importantly the last night he was with his disciples before he went to the cross the next day. You remember he, they started in the upper room observing the Passover. And he launches into a final discourse before the cross. Now, he, he first of all opens up chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 13, but into chapter 14, he's talking about going away. I'm going to be leaving you soon. Where I'm going, you can't come with me. I'll come back for you, but right now you can't go with me. And their hearts are shattered. They're broken. Why can't we go with you? Where are you going? How long are you going to be going? That kind of thing, right? And we talked about that. He said, look, I'm going away. You can't come with me. But I, when I get back to the Father, I'll pray the Father, and he's going to send another helper, uh, the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'll pray the Father, uh, John 14, verses 16 and 17. I'll pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The Lord Jesus Christ used the Greek word alas for another. I'm gonna, he will give you another helper. He used the word alas, which meant that the Holy Spirit was not going to be another God in the sense of being a, a, a totally different God. But he would be the exact same God in another or a different form. Think of water. Okay, water. You've got... Um, Water that is liquid, you got water that can be frozen into a solid, you got water that can be heated until it's a steam, vapor. It's all the same substance. It's all H2O. It's all water. It's just water in different forms. This is our God. Okay? Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all the same God in different forms. Okay? Father, Spirit, Jesus, human body. Holy Spirit is a spirit uh, came in to replace Jesus, who would be ascending at one point in the near future from John 14 back to the Father, uh, maintaining his human body, glorified although, but uh, after his resurrection. But um, it's important that we understand these little distinctions because they really communicate some very important theological truths that we must understand, right? Uh, people say, well, the Holy Spirit, Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, the Holy Spirit is not really a person. It's an, it's an essence. It's a force. It's like gravity or electricity. Well, God's not gravity. God's not electricity. Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to be the exact same God in a different form. Jesus was a person or is a person. Holy Spirit's a person, right? And so on. It's, good, it's, under, it's important that we understand how these work. And so the translators, although they could have translated verses 6 and 7 with the words another in both verses, understood that Paul was trying to be nuanced. He was, he was, he was employing a play on words. And that's why they wanted to make sure they translated uh, verse 6 with the word different, verse 7 with the word another, because of this very thing. Uh, they understand still what Paul was trying to communicate. And so verse 6, I marvel, let me just paraphrase, okay? Where Paul said in verse, verses 6 and 7, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a totally different gospel. That's what he's saying. 
which is not another. In other words, the exact same one I gave to you, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, last time we talked about this, so I'm going to revisit it just briefly. Paul talks about how some want to pervert the gospel, which means to twist or distort, right? And it carries with it, the Greek word carries with the idea of making something opposite of what it's supposed to be or do. Look, to add anything to the true gospel doesn't improve it. There are folks out there that are adding stuff to the Bible. What is that going to give us a new and improved Bible? I thought the word of God was perfect. It was it was it was errorless. So how are you going to add human wisdom? I had a professor in college say this. You got to take the secular and the sacred talking about counseling. You take the word of God and and the wisdom of philosophers and psychologists mix them together and you get a, his words a superior counseling methodology i was just a young pastor i had to meet with him i said can i talk to you after class and i challenged him the word of god is perfect it's pure you're going to add from the polluted wells of man's wisdom to the pure perfect word of god you're going to come up with something more perfect more pure it's ridiculous this is the mentality in the church even it's just ridiculous what's what's going on you guys you can't add anything to the true gospel to improve it Okay, um, you can't say, well, I'm just going to, we're just adding something, a little something that's going to, you know, it's, it's, it, it, make it a little different, but it's still basically good. Look, to add anything to the gospel, we'll distort it into something completely different. Distort it into something completely different and make it the opposite of good news. In other words, it will no longer save from hell, but now will only damn a person to hell. That's bad news. That's what you call taking something and making it the opposite. The true gospel is good news. That's what the word gospel means. You mess with it, you turn it into bad news because it can't save. Now, as we said last time, there's only one entrance into salvation slash heaven. Jesus said that. He said it. Uh, he said in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. Anyone who enters by me will be saved. He said in John 14, I'm the way, the only way to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. So these are his words. All right? He said it. But as we said last time, and bear with me, okay, uh, for some new folks, we want to make sure they're up to speed, but he's the door that leads to salvation. But we know that any door that leads to something of great value is going to be locked, right? And likewise, the door leading to salvation, and salvation, by the way, is the most precious and priceless thing in the universe. Jesus said, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? I don't care if you could have the wealth of Elon Musk or, or uh, whoever else is wealthy out there. Uh, you could gain the whole world. How long can you enjoy it? What would it profit a person if they gave up their own soul? I mean, I mean, if they if they, if they gained the riches of the world and lost their own soul. Look, again, the door leading to salvation 
is locked because salvation is priceless. And the door is locked and requires a key to open it. Well, what is the key that unlocks the door and allows a person to enter into Christ and find salvation? Very simply, it's the gospel. We talked about this last time. We said the gospel is the salvation, what a key is to a lock. However, we all know that a key won't unlock a door if it's somehow gotten bent or twisted, obviously, right? The key must be straight and true if it's going to be used to open a door. And the same is true with the gospel. If Satan can bend, you know, twist, pervert, distort the gospel, he can keep the door of salvation locked to seekers. Locked. Which is the whole goal of Satan's false teachers, preachers, and pastors, whether they realize it or not. I'm sure a lot of them are completely self-deluded and think that they have the truth that they're sharing or they don't care that they're uh, con artists and just trying to make a buck off the people of God, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, They don't realize often they're working for the devil, but they are. Satan is using them to present a gospel that is perverted, twisted, bent, warped, A gospel that can be believed in with all your heart, but it can't save you. It won't unlock the door of salvation. Verse 7. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The word trouble is a Greek word that means to make seasick. Get into some of the meanings of these Greek words. You start to see things a little differently. All right? There are those who want to trouble you. Again, make you seasick. Uh, is when one boards a ship and eventually that ship out in the open sea begins to encounter a pretty rough storm, rough waters, and uh, the people are tossed to and fro on that ship, right, Uh, by the waves. What happens when you're at sea being tossed violently to and fro? Most people get seasick, right? It kind of takes the fun out of the cruise. Guys, that's what legalism does. When anybody um, embarks on a system of legalism, they board this belief system based on legalism. It doesn't take long before they begin to be tossed to and fro, up and down, in and out. That's what legalism does, okay? That's what legalism does. Uh, You know, you're in, you're out. What do I mean? One day you're saved, next day you're not saved. Sometimes in the morning you're saved, and in the evening you're not saved. You're bounced up and down, in and out. You're on an emotional roller coaster. One minute you do right, God loves me, and the next minute you mess up and blow it, God hates me. This is really, and, 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 and you, you go through a system like this long enough where you're up and down, in and out. You never have any assurance of salvation, and God loves me, God hates me. I'm this, you know. I'll tell you what happens, that it doesn't take long before a person becomes spiritually and emotionally sick. And you either abandon the faith altogether, I've seen that, or worse, you abandon life by committing suicide. I was telling first service, we had a woman in the church years ago. Actually, she had heard us on the radio and had come to our church. I don't think she was here more than a few weeks, maybe a month. And she had come from a a hyper-legalistic church. Uh, Really, really legalistic. 
And she had gone there for years, and she was sick in her spirit and soul. She had no peace. She had no rest. She was miserable. She was fearful. She was depressed all the time. And so she heard us on the radio, and, you know, we just try to preach the gospel of grace. So she decides to come. She had a lot of baggage, a lot of emotional baggage, spiritual baggage. She was terrified of losing her salvation all the time. I spent hours with her here and there. A lot of our ladies at that time spent hours with her trying to comfort her, give her scriptures about grace, and so on and so forth. I thought we were making some progress, and then at one point I realized that the chains of legalism had bound her too tightly. She was so guilty, so worried about being in the wrong church, and was her old church the right church, she went back to it. And a few weeks later, she committed suicide. And so her daughter called me and asked me to do the funeral service. She said, I don't want anybody from that church anywhere near my mother's funeral. I believe they were responsible for her death. And they certainly contributed to it. I believe that. That's what legalism does. Because it's rooted in the devil, right? He's behind it. And he comes to steal, kill, and destroy it shouldn't surprise us, right? That's the outcome. At very least, destroy your faith. At worst, destroy your life. And then your eternity. He says, "Some, I, I'm just dumbfounded that you listen to people that are troubling you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. How? By telling these people that salvation isn't a gift you receive by faith, but a wage you work To earn. A wage you work for to earn. And guys, that is a clear lie based on everything the New Testament especially tells us about salvation. I'll read to you Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You all know it. There's other ones, many other ones we could look at. But this is all we need to look at this morning. I'll read to you the NLT. Where Paul said, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift. That's what grace means, a gift. It's a gift of God. Salvation is a gift from God. It's not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. Very simply, ours, and this is what Paul's going to be dealing with in this section, okay? So in some ways, today's introductory for, as we meet next week and beyond, um, Freedom, uh, liberty from law or uh, legalism from religion. Um, It's important that we need to understand. And I know that most, if not everybody in this room, understands what uh, we're talking about. But there's a lot of folks out there who go to churches that don't know what, what this is all about. They think that to get to heaven, they have to work hard, do good. Pray the rosary, light the candles. I was there at one point. They don't realize that heaven is a free gift. They just receive by faith and say, thank you, God. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said the only thing we contributed to our salvation was the sin. Verse 8, Galatians 1. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, he repeats himself, okay? He was a rabbi, and he knew out of the mouth of of two or three witnesses something is established. So Paul didn't have another person next to him. I'm just going to repeat it. (laughs) Just for emphasis, uh, you know? Um, (laughs) But, you know, if we are an angel angel from heaven preaching any any of the gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. Notice that Paul says, if an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel to you, but he doesn't say if an angel from God preaches any other gospel to you why do i make that distinction because guys right now satan and his fallen angels still have access to heaven and they will continue to have access to heaven job one they'll continue to have access to heaven until the midpoint of the tribulation period when god finally kicks them out and locks the door behind them that's revelation 12 Midpoint of the tribulation period. But right now, angel and, uh, Satan and his fallen angels still have access into, uh, to heaven and therefore could conceivably bring a false message, quote-unquote, from heaven, which would not be from God, because a true angel sent from God could never or would never preach a false gospel. You know, Joseph Smith Jr., who founded the Mormon Church, he had an experience where an angel visited him one day. The angel Moroni. Maybe you've heard this. Uh, And I like to say gave him all kinds of baloney uh, about how to get to heaven. Well, you know, here's the thing that Joseph Smith, he must have been flattered because a real godly man would have questioned this immediately. But the angel said that, look, the true gospel has been lost for 1,900 years. All the years since Jesus rose from the dead, the true gospel was lost. So for 1,900 years, God let people go to hell who didn't have access to the truth? He waited 1,900 years to touch one guy to give him the truth? It doesn't even make sense, right? But the angel, I don't know if it was in a vision or... I forgot a dream. I forgot how this worked with this angel. But he, I think, took Joseph to a place and showed him what was called the golden plates of Nephi. And on these plates, they had uh, some strange Egyptian ancient hieroglyphics written. Of course, Joseph couldn't read them. So the angel gave him a pair of special glasses, magic glasses, called the Urim and the Thummim. And once Joseph put on the glasses, behold, he could read what the plate said, and he translated those plates into the Book of Mormon. And basically the Mormon church teaches that it's a blend of Hinduism and Christianity, that God was once a man um, on a faraway planet, and he lived an exemplary life, and he was... um, ascended to godhood where he had his own Adam and Eve and his own universe. And any human being that lives according to the the, um, truth of Mormonism 
and they live an exemplary life can ascend eventually to God to Godhood and have their own Adam, their own Eve, their own universe and so on. Okay? That's basically the, the lie of Mormonism. Well, you say, well, okay, but does that affect me at all? I'm not a Mormon. I'm not going to be a Mormon. Well, you know what? These angels didn't start and finish with Moroni. In fact, I'll give you three scriptures. You can write down the references. Because they affect us, especially the second one. Well, all three of them. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Where do you get a spirit tester? I'm old enough to remember tube testers from Ace Hardware. Your TV burned out a tube. Pulls tubes out and take it and plug them into the tester. Uh, I know where to, I know what a tube tester. I, where do you get a spirit tester? Well, you, get, you got one in your lap. It's the word of God. How do you test the spirits to make sure they're from God? Do they say anything that contradicts the word of God? And if they say anything that contradicts, and anyone who claims to have received a message from one of these spirits or angels, and they're out there preaching this thing, if it's not in the word of God, they're false prophets. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, the last days, here we are, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. We're getting into some of these a little bit today. We'll get into more of these as we go on. But in the last days, there's going to be uh, a ramping up of false doctrine. It, it's going to get so bad that in the tribulation period, Jesus said that deception would become so rampant that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Now, that doesn't mean the church. That means the Jews. And when I taught the passage, I went back in the Old Testament, pulled out some verses where the Jews were called the elect of God. They're going to be the ones in the tribulation period that God's going to going to save first 144,000 Jews, uh, which will go out into all the world preaching the true gospel. Gentiles, yes, will get saved. Many other Jews and so on. Um, but, the, but Paul says, I'm sorry, Timothy, excuse me. Paul said to Timothy that in the last days, this ramping up of false doctrine would happen. We're seeing it, and people would be deceived. And this, uh, I think that he primarily, if I'm not mistaken, um, some will depart from the faith means that they had some association with the faith. Churchgoers. Not everybody who goes to the church is a real Christian. We know that. But deception would come into the church. It would peel away from the true church people that were open, were seekers. But they didn't know the word. They were susceptible to Satan's lies and they got swept away. Second John Chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. The doctrine of Christ is the gospel. Okay? Whoever does not abide, remain, continue in the true gospel um, does not have God. They're not saved. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the true gospel, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And I was telling first service that you can read commentaries. One of the my favorite commentaries, Warren Worsby, said he believed this means you can't even let a JW in your house. They come knocking at your door. You can't even let them in your house. You've got to go outside and talk to them outside. I don't kind of see it that way. I could be wrong, and he could be absolutely right. Back in those days, they met in, in house churches. Their church was in the house. They didn't, church didn't meet in formal buildings until the 4th century A.D. So churches were in houses. And I believe what, what uh, John is saying is, look, if somebody is, is spreading false doctrine... You don't invite him into your house, church, and hey, let us hear what you have to say. I'm not going to turn my pulpit over to a JW just to hear all that he or she has to say. That's ridiculous. I got a lot of young people in this, uh, young Christians, or even seekers. I'm not going to expose them to that garbage. You folks that are older and established in the faith, you're not going to buy into it. But we have to protect the little ones, the little sheep, right? Or the little ones that are seeking to maybe become followers of Christ. I mean, I've let JWs into my house before, had some great conversations. Um, I was having coffee with a pastor in my kitchen, and all of a sudden, true story, knock on the door, uh, very kind, beautiful, uh, friendly African-American couple, out witnessing, get JWs out witnessing together. Well, come on in. Let's talk. They don't get that a lot. <laughs> But they were the sweetest people. And we had a nice conversation. No yelling, nothing. We just They shared. They knew the Bible. But they knew it from the JW perspective. Um, they could quote scripture, but then they interpreted it wrong. We had a nice conversation, and we prayed for them. But uh, I've let them into the house. But um, look, here, twice in Galatians 1, Paul per, uh, pronounced those who pervert the gospel accursed. And certainly there are going to be uh, accursed forever if they don't repent. That's where we come in. Give them the truth. Give them the true gospel and pray God will enlighten them. Okay? But um, when Paul said that, you know, that those who pervert the gospel are accursed, uh, the word he uses is anathema. Anathema. Which means dedicated to destruction or eternally damned. Or I've heard it uh, translated cursed to the lowest hell pretty strong word Paul is saying that no matter who the preacher may be whether an angel from heaven or hypothetically even if I Paul came to you and said look I was wrong uh, here's the real gospel and gave you a gospel other than the one I gave to you when I first came to your area even I would be accursed accursed so verse 8, But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now apparently, Paul had a lot of enemies, and some of them were accusing him of um, being a man-pleaser. Being a man-pleaser. The word persuade in the Greek means to make a friend. Uh, guys, men pleasers don't invoke anathemas 
on those who proclaim false gospels because they want everyone to like them. You know, men pleasers, by the very term, they want people to like them. They don't want to step on toes. If they're pastors, they don't want to say anything that's negative or that will drive people out or bring conflict into their little cozy church. They want to keep building the church. They want more and more people coming and giving. And so they keep things upbeat, positive, how you can be wealthy and prosperous and have the most successful business in town, the nicest house, and so on. That's what we hear a lot today, all right? But Paul was no man-pleaser. If Paul wanted to please men, he would have remained a, a, a zealous Pharisee and promoter of the law because he would have been in, he would have been, had a lot of friends in Judaism. Uh, young Saul of Tarsus was a theologian, and he was already an up-and-coming star in Judaism. Uh, he would have, he was really uh, on his way to becoming the greatest theologian in their history, possibly until God met him on the road to Damascus and opened his eyes and he got saved. And then he rejected all that. Remember he said in Philippians, I believe, that which I counted as gain, I now count as dung, because I have the truth, I have the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, the, the, the Messiah, our Savior, and so on. I count all that stuff in Judaism as dung, waste. But he, he says, look, um, if I, still, if I still seek to please men, I would no longer be a bond servant of Christ. Let me just spend a couple minutes on this, all right? It's important. The word bond servant is, a Greek, is the Greek word doulos. Doulos. And again, remember, we've got to know words. got to know meanings if we're going to fully understand what the Bible is teaching us. The word bond servant uh, is the Greek word doulos. Doulos only means one thing in Greek. Slave. That's all it ever means. Slave. I mean, there are six or seven words in the Greek for servant, which is, which is a different concept from doulos. A servant is someone who works for another. A slave is someone who is owned by another. A servant is the employee of another. A slave is the property of another. Big difference. In the New Testament, the New Testament identifies Christians as doulois, slaves, 150 times. A slave in New Testament times was bought and owned. He or she had no legal rights, owned no property, and could not refuse any of their master's commands. They were the total property of another human being. They were totally dependent on their master for everything they needed and were, and were rewarded or punished as pleased their master. But the concept and language of slavery is offensive to us. We don't like it because of our own history, but back in those early days that the Bible was being translated uh, and, um, and, and the printing press had been invented, um, people didn't like it back then. We don't like it today. They didn't like it back then. I mean, today we associate it with evil, and so, and so did they. And so the translators of the New Testament sought to soften doula, slave, by translating the word in almost every New Testament version as servant or bond servant or bond slave instead of slave, mostly bond servant instead of slave. Uh, again, it started with the Geneva Bible back in 1560 because the translators were afraid that there would be too much stigma associated with the word slave, that the word would carry with it too much negative baggage, causing the new translation to be seen in a less than completely positive light. 
So they created a word. The word bondservant is not even in the Greek. It was made up. The word is doulos, slave. But they didn't like that word. They thought it was going to carry too much negative with it, too much negative baggage. So they made up a word, bondservant. And so for five and a half centuries, Christians have been cheated out of a proper understanding of our true relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe it's just me. I kind of think this is important. That we understand the difference between a servant and a slave. And if you tell me the New Testament says that I am a slave, the slave of a master, Jesus Christ, who owns me and whose commands I have no choice but to obey because I've given my life to him. He said, count the cost. Nobody forced me to be a Christian. But Jesus, if you're going to come and follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, right? You're going to believe in me. So I signed on of my own free will, understanding that I was given up all my rights to serve him now. So if you tell me I'm a slave to a master who now owns me and whose commands I have to obey, I get that. I get it. However, if you tell me I'm the servant of Christ, well, in my mind, it could mean that I'm an employee of Jesus. And you know, guys, that puts me in a negotiating position. And you? which is a huge difference from being a slave who has no rights, no power, and no will of their own. You see, if we see ourselves as servants, as employees to a boss, well, it completely messes up and confuses at least one statement that Jesus made, many others, where he said, no man can serve to what? Masters. If I interpret that as bosses, that doesn't make sense to me. Because there are people that many of you work in jobs where you have multiple bosses. Or you work two jobs where you have at least two bosses over you. People read their Bibles with that mindset, well, it's, I'm, a, I'm a servant. He's my employee, uh, employer. I'm his employee. So reading their New, their New Testament, they're not getting it. But if you say, well, you're a slave, and no man can be the slave, excuse me, no one can be a slave to two people, Because you can't be owned by two people. Well, what if they went in halvesies? They, <laughs> geez, you know, you, they wouldn't have gone in halvesies on a slave back then. The whole idea was you were the complete owner of this human being. They didn't go in halvesies. All right? So the idea is that what Jesus communicates, no man can be the slave of two people because you can't be owned by two people. And that's what Paul had in mind. What he's communicating. He is setting up what's going to follow. And he wants to make it as firm and as, I don't know, shocking, I guess, as, as possible. That he shakes these people back to reality. Verse 10, for, I, for do I now persuade men or God? You, want, you call me a man pleaser? Well, who am I persuading now? Who am I trying to please now? Go get him, Paul. <laughs> for, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? If for if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant or a slave of Christ. Guys, if you are a slave of Christ, there's only one person that you must please. 
we try to please ourselves oftentimes. Because in reality, a lot of people try to use God to get what they want. That's not a true believer in Christ. A true believer in Christ says, Lord, here am I, send me. I do always those things that please you. My life is not mine anymore. It was bought with a price. It belongs to you. Glorify your name through my life, which is now yours. Guys, when Jesus, we're done. Let me just finish with this. When Jesus is truly your master, your Lord, you give up all independence and all autonomy. You're no longer in control. You're no longer calling the shots. Well, nobody ever told me that. Well, I'm sorry. I don't know who you heard the gospel from. That's why it's important that we understand what the Bible says about the gospel, which we're going to get into uh, as we progress. I have told you folks this before, and I've also preached it at other churches. Christianity, the Christian life is not hard to understand. I'm not saying it's easy to live. I'm just saying it's not hard to understand. It's a total surrendering of my life to Jesus. The more I surrender to him, the less I hold on to what my life for me, the more fruitful, victorious, successful I'm going to be as a Christian for his service. That's what You will know fruitfulness, victory, joy, peace, love, everything that flows from God, it will be proportionate to how much you die to self and give your life to Christ. That's all there is to it. Well, that's hard. Of course it's hard. It's impossible. You need the Holy Spirit to do it through you, but you've got to be willing. You've got to be willing. But listen. By your willingness to give up all control of your life to Jesus, yes, now it, it's going to impact the, the amount of success and victory you have in the Christian life. But it really is going to demonstrate whether or not you're a Christian to begin with. Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they what? Follow me. Follow me. Guys, obedience is the evidence of saving faith and true salvation. Not the cause. Not the cause of salvation. This is the difference between religion and relationship, between Christianity and any other works-based religious system like Judaism. One is faith-based. Christianity, which says, teaches salvation by faith leading to obedience, grace. The other is works-based. Obedience leading to salvation, which is legalism, in this context, Judaism. Religion. We have a lot to say about this in the future. But just understand, there is a huge difference And I was raised in a system, Roman Catholicism, where they mixed elements, and we'll talk about this, of biblical grace, salvation by grace, with works. The Catholic Church is like the Judaizers of the modern church. They are trying to take works and grace and blend them together. You're saved by grace, but we define that as works. I'll leave it there because we have more to say about this, but 
This is the difference between relationship and religion. Christianity is about a relationship. Judaism is a religion. Roman Catholicism is a religion. And there's a lot of zealous people in these faith systems that are zealous for their beliefs, but it doesn't mean they're going to be saved. Because a bent key will not open a door. I don't care how hard you try. A bent gospel will not unlock the door of salvation. Does it just that's just the way it works. We have to know the true gospel. And so Paul will proceed to give us that as we move through this incredible book. Father, we thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. Thank you, Lord, that you've taken us out of darkness. So many of us in this room were once in darkness. The darkness of religion, whatever form it took. We thank you, Lord, that you opened our eyes and gave us your truth. And Lord, thank you that we are now your children. And that, Lord, we, um, we know you because of your grace. We praise you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies, these liberating, hopefully, studies in your word. Uh, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.